Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. My guest today is Dr. Dave Waller. Dr. Waller practices in Rockwall, Texas. He's a Gonstead diplomat and has been in practice for 21 years. He's on the GCSS Board of Directors and he's chairman of the College Liaison Committee. Today we'll be talking with him specifically about chronic patients. These are often the most difficult cases we see, but they're too frequently overshadowed by the acute cases. So today we're going to give them their due time. So without any further ado, Dr. Dave Waller. Hi, Dr. Waller, and thank you for joining us today on your birthday, no less, which is above and beyond the call of duty. So thank you and happy birthday. Hey, I appreciate it. Could you start off by telling us uh, how you got into chiropractic and more specifically how you ended up in Gonstead Chiropractic? Sure. Uh, I always tell people that God God put me into chiropractic because I was in the more in the medical profession. So my history is that after uh, after a year in college, I decided to join the Army. So I joined the Army National Guard and became a medic. And that training allowed me to work as an emergency medical technician on both ambulance and the emergency room. So I was working side by side with a lot of doctors and they were pretty negative on the profession. They really didn't seem happy at what they did. They were, a lot of them were day trading to make enough money or extra money because I guess they weren't being paid enough for what their, their lifestyles were, were, were at that time. So I had an uncle who was a chiropractor and I knew he really loved what he did. We weren't close and I'd only been adjusted by him once. So I really didn't know much about chiropractic, but you know, I decided to, hey, I'm going to go do this. So I applied, got into Parker. Um, and once I got there, I just fell in love with chiropractic. I realized what we could do. And it was largely because of the Gonstead work. So when I started Parker, I went full steam ahead into three different things. One was Gonstead. One was the chiropractic neurology program. And the other one was applied kinesiology. So I just dove head first into that, learned all I could. And nothing really seemed to compare with what Gonstead had done. And it was actual chiropractic. The neuro guys, you know, they, they talked a lot of good stuff and it was definitely fascinating. And Dr. Carrick at the time was doing stuff with people's in comas. And, and I thought, man, that's pretty cool. But then when I got Dr. Plogger's book, there's a case study in there about a, a kid who had a Jefferson's fracture who had been in a coma. And then when I read that, I realized, Dr. Gonsev was doing stuff with people with comas who had Jefferson's fractures before Carrick was probably even in chiropractic. And it's, and he was doing it by practicing actually the principle of chiropractic, because I don't know how much people know about the neuro program, but it's really the application is not chiropractic in principle. They don't really believe in subluxation. They kind of fire pathways to work, work around what the subluxation is causing, but uh, I don't really consider it a chiropractic per se. So anyway, uh, I decided that after one year, after my first year in school, that I just committed 100% to the Gonstead work, and I started running the Gonstead Club in my third trimester and ran it uh, till I graduated. So I'm, I've been full-time Gonstead since Tri-3. All right. Well, that's great. Um, now, you, um, you're, with the GCSS, you're the chair of the um, – the college liaison committee. 
That's correct. Could you tell us a little about what the Colors Liaison Committee is, what it does, how it functions, those kind of things? Sure. The College Liaison Committee is essentially supposed to be the go-between between the GCSS and the colleges. We want to, our, our goal really is just to facilitate the colleges to be able to get the, the resources they need to have good clubs. We want, well, we know that you know, the, the future of Gonstead starts in the schools. If we don't have active and viable clubs, there's not going to be, you know, future DCs. Very few people, I would, I've never even heard of any of our, in this day and age, starting Gonstead once they've been out in practice a few years. I'm sure there may be a, a few cases, but by far, most people either get into Gonstead in school or they never get into Gonstead at all. So, uh, we want to have a club at every campus, uh, at every school. That would be the ultimate goal. And then we want to really reach out to the active clubs and just make sure they have everything they need as far as speakers, you know, so they can put on seminars and what have you. So uh, that's what we're trying to do. All right. And then kind of dovetailing off of that, could you tell us a little about uh, the GAP program that you do? Sure. So. I was really impressed by, you know, the Palmer crew, you know, the got the Troxel intern program has always impressed me by the quality of students that they, they put out and the doctors they help. And I never personally got to meet Dr. Troxel or Dr. Thatcher, but I, I'd known people that were trained by them. I was trained by uh, one of their, uh, one of uh, the guys that was around at the same time, Dr. Larry Landers. But I wanted to do something here in Dallas because Parker, you know, that's where I went to school. Luckily when I was in, there were some doctors, you know, that would help us out, but, you know, without field docs helping out, you know, the clubs or the schools, they're really kind of shorthanded. And sadly, and I'm sure it's the same at most colleges, you know, Parker doesn't let them x-ray for almost any reason. So their, their knowledge of how to read a, a film chiropractically is almost non-existent. So I decided I would try to create this program where we would basically we meet once a month for about four hours and we cover everything. We'll start, you know, break it down into modules, but we cover the whole system. I also cover, you know, starting a practice, you know, running a practice, everything just to try to fill in the gaps of their education. So the gap program is called uh, actually Gonstead Advanced Practicum, but it really does just kind of fill in the gaps of what these guys are missing, which is quite a bit. Yeah, that's that was always the challenge for us as students as well. Um, we didn't have a lot in LA either. Um, although now that I think about it, I believe that we first met um, in uh, El Salvador on one of Dr. Tanaka's trips, and I've never really talked about it much on the podcast. But for us, those trips were a huge way for us to gain some skills that we were never going to get in school. You know, I saw that looking at uh, your your bio on the uh, GSS page. When did when did you work down there? Because I ran to the, both of the clinics down there um, in 19. I'm trying to think when that was. Because uh, that's where I met my wife. I went on those those trips and met my mm -hmm. wife and then eventually um, we got married. And probably in 2001 or 2002, I went down there and uh, ran both of the clinics. Oh, that's interesting. So I, my, I took my first trip with Dr. Tanaka in 1998, um, and it was still a little sketchy then. Um, so I did two trips while I was still in school. I graduated in April of 2000, and I, then I spent six months in Central and South America. Um, and I spent at least a month of it or so 
in El, in San Salvador. And I did, and Dr. Tanaka just happened to have a trip planned. So I did another trip with him while I was already living there. And then the last time I went was in 2007. So when I was there in 2000, I was staying with, um, with Freddie. Yeah. And, Romero. Uh, Romero and uh, Trevor Clark. Yeah. Uh, and so I was, I, I was mostly hanging out in the clinic with Freddie, but I went to both clinics and spent time with both of them. So that was part of why, why I was there to learn as much as I could from those two guys. Very cool. Yeah. Great guys. Yeah. Yeah. It was a, it's a great, it was a great experience and it definitely, it's like, uh, what is it? The, what about Bob the immersion therapy? Yeah. <laughs> you, you, if you're drowning, you got no choice, but to at least try to swim and see what happens. And I, I learned a lot there. I think uh, overall, I learned a lot more than I even knew at the time. And it wasn't until later on that I was kind of like, wow, I guess I picked some stuff up that I didn't even know I was learning. Yeah. At the time, Trevor was running both of the clinics and then he was, he left for New Mexico. But anyway, uh, yeah. I show up to work day one. He hands me a, a one page script to read to the patients. And basically I was, I was off and running. <laughs> I knew I didn't speak any Spanish. <laughs> so just say this to everyone. <laughs> yeah, that works well. <laughs> yeah. Um, Let's see. Okay. So today, one of, we were talking about it before. The thing that we really wanted to talk about today and focus on was the issue of chronic patients, because these are the patients that often become forgotten patients. Uh, they just kind of meld into the practice and you forget they're there. Um, because I think within chiropractic, there's a strong tendency to just keep doing the same thing visit after visit. And sometimes the justification is, well, they're not getting worse, but yeah, but are they getting better? And so, um, we as Gonstead doctors, we should be able to offer something different. So can you talk a little bit about how a Gonstead doctor should approach the issue of having a chronic patient? Sure. And I come from the standpoint of being a chronic patient. I, I had a lot of trauma as a child, fractured my skull, had, you know, a lot of, you know, neck trauma. So I had, you know, chronic spinal problems that, you know, were, were decades old. And my mentor was, uh, extremely chronic. So his story, he was a 61 Palmer grad. He probably started seeing Gonsad uh, doing stuff back in probably 59. And he had a lot of health problems. And what he would do is he would actually shut his office down here in Texas and go and stay at the Caracol for two to three weeks at a time and get seen twice a day. So he had been adjusted by Gonsad probably nearly more than any field doctor ever. So he knew you know, what Gonsa did as far as, you know, how he checked people. And, you know, he, you know, it took a long time for Gonsa really to even help him because he had such chronic problems. But through, through his experience and him, you know, he practiced over 40 years uh, as well. You know, he really developed a sense of, you know, what was going on with these chronic patients. And he used to always talk about scar tissue and in the role it played in a lot of cases, because, we all know that when these subluxations sit there for decades, you know, the body tries to fuse that joint. Well, it's doing that largely with scar tissue that, that we don't see on the x-ray. It's kind of just kind of, you know, wrapping it and, you know, locking it down. And a good portion of what the adjustment does is simply break up that scar tissue. That's why, you know, we get that motion restored. We're, we're breaking that up and allowing things to change and to heal. Uh, and hopefully that that scar tissue lays back down in a, in a better fashion afterwards. But, Learning to take care of him, because when I took over for him, I actually bought his practice and uh, he taught me what he did. So he 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 taught me and another guy uh, everything. He took us back to, to 101 palpation, just the way he learned it from Gonset and, and as a Palmer student. So it was really eye-opening uh, when he would basically show us, you know, the way Gonset would check him 
little little things that didn't weren't necessarily taught in the seminar, but that he saw in, in Gansa in Gansa do that were helping figure out. You know, we always were told that when Gansa had trouble with a patient, he'd put the scope down and go back to palpation because he was trying to figure out that that chronic, you know, what's going on there. Because the chronic the chronic patient or the chronic subluxation, you know, is elusive. I think, you know, like I know when I get checked, you know, if someone really doesn't do a good job of checking, they miss a good portion of my, my core problems. And it's very frustrating because, you know, you expect to get better, but when the chiropractor can't get better, it's, it's really, really disheartening. So, and I know it's just because maybe the person doesn't have the level of training that they're, they know how to look for the chronics, but I just see a tendency for a lot of even pretty good Gansa guys to do a very quick uh, exam. They're the, the, maybe they're scoping too fast. They only palpate maybe where they think they have a break. You know, there's really not the level of detail in the palpation and even the scoping and, and other criteria that you can look for to really figure things out. So I think in a lot of our practices and me, and I'm included in all this, is that those are the cases where, yeah, they, they don't get better or they get limited results you know, and we just fall short of what we really could do. So um, when I teach my students about how to find it, you know, I basically go back to, you got to really trust your exam and you have to do a good exam. You have to really learn how to palpate and you got to palpate everything. So, you know, I know there's different schools in palpation. You know, some people are extremely just all light palpation. That's all they do. And there's some people that are really deep and some people think you can't. You know, you have to do it both. And Gonsid was a very, he, he did a lot of very deep palpation. But when I teach my students, I said, that doesn't mean it's painful palpation. We talk about, you know, when you make a contact on a person that you can, you can contact hard where it's painful, or you can contact, you know, you can make a really good contact and be soft. Well, the same thing with palpation, the way you contact the segment, I can get very deep on tissue and elicit certain information about that tissue that you're never going to get simply from the light static palpation and not, not hurt the patient. And that's, that's a skill that I was taught by my mentor that, you know, and he just said, that's what Gansa did to him. So it's little things like that. And looking for tissue changes. My, my mentor would do all sorts of palpation way lateral to the spine sometimes. And I do it myself because when that nerve is sub or, or when that subluxation exists for a period of time, that nerve for lack of a better word, becomes weak and you see atrophy in tissues. And if you know how to look for that, it, it's basically old old school nerve tracing, more or less, where you can, if you're really having trouble finding stuff, you can kind of go laterally and, and lightly go down the skin and you'll find these, these dips kind of just like you would with the spinal edema. And because it may not be present or to any real appreciable degree on the spine, because when things become really chronic, all the tissue may feel the same and the scope readings may be minuscule where you'll miss them and find the big, more acute readings above or below it. But these, uh, these real chronic subluxations, you know, they have all the signs, but sometimes they're so indistinguishable from the uh, surrounding tissue just because everything's so bad that if you don't know how to look for it and are, and are looking for it, you're just going to completely miss it most of the time. And, and you'll just find the more acute, subluxations that are in that general vicinity. So that's what he taught me and what I teach my students about it. And I think, I think it's what, you know, in our profession is probably the hardest part for us all is the chronic, just because it is so much harder. It takes more, a little more time. 
But, you know, if we don't do it, who will? Because we already know the constant of work is one of the few truly chiropractic systems out there still in existence. So I think it's really important for us to, to get back to that. Yeah, I think to your point, too, I've had uh, students ask how to become better at adjusting. And I always tell them, get better at palpating, because the better you are at palpating, the better your adjustments will be. And the better your adjustments become because of it, the better your palpation becomes. So it really is like this feedback back and forth that you just basically develop this overall better sense. And as that improves, both sides improve. And that's 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 the there's a value in that because you will start to pick up subluxations that you didn't pick up before. Like I recognize that in myself, that there was a point in my learning where I was like, I'm finding things that I'm pretty sure I used to have sitting in front of me, but I didn't know they were there. And now I know they're there. And that's a big deal. Um, I, I think the other thing, so to tell, to tell you my story, um, I, this is kind of to your point. Um, so I have a, a spondy that I beat up with three years of playing college football until I was paralyzed, basically paralyzed. And that's why I had to quit playing. Um, and for the longest time, people wanted to fix it by trying to set my sacrum under my spondy to try to help that relationship, which that's fine. That's reasonable. But it never really helped me that much. It would buy me a little time, whatever. It wasn't until I was in El Salvador, of all places, and Trevor told me, you've got a PIEX. And I was like, okay, whatever. Fix that then. So he fixes my PIEX, and within hours, I'm standing up straight and pain-free, like better than anything I've ever had. And he never had to touch my sacrum. And so over time, I came to realize that in my case, specific to me, my spondy does not compensate well. So when I get an EX, particularly the EX part of the PIEX on the right, my spondy will light up. And as soon as I get that EX fixed, the spondy goes away. But if they mess with the, with the sacrum, then, it, then I don't get better. And so that's where I easily could become one of those chronic patients where I'm getting just enough help from it to keep doing it. But, and, not enough, and it's not bad enough that you'd want to go looking for more. But by looking for more you find that extra something that was actually probably hidden underneath in the first place. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think a lot of our patients, you know, they just have these compensation patterns, which, you know, that's, that's why they're there is, you know, the, you know, the compensation oftentimes is the most, the most, you know, symptomatic thing on the patient, but mm -hmm. our job is not to be adjusting the compensation is to be fixing the majors and those compensations take care of themselves. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of the things I learned on myself is how much my, my compensations could be screaming in pain while the real subluxation is relatively quiet because it's not moving. So it can't hurt. <laughs> There's nothing to mess with it. Yeah. And I think that's a, a you know, a, where the, you knowing how to really look at a film the right way is very important because the, you know, the x-ray is great because it shows us how to adjust. But also, you know, if we look at that disc and realize that, you know, when we see these thin discs, that only happens because that that joint hasn't been moving for a long time. So when we see like a D5 disc, I mean, we're going, man, that, that thing's been stuck for 25 years or more. Yeah. And you know, when you, when somebody comes into your office and, you know, you know, maybe that's not the symptom producer at the time, but we know, Hey, that's, that's a bad area. Now we don't jump on it right away necessarily but what i find is that when i see these things and the role of scar tissue is that that anything that's stuck so you know when we create change you know because of the riding reflex the whole spinal change if you adjust fifth lumbar and you know if that creates the change it's supposed to everything in the spine above it will change to some degree to bring the eyes back to level it has to do that so what i find is that if there's anything above or even below um where you're adjusting that 
is too stuck to allow or, or to allow the body to compensate for that, then that can actually hinder results. So sometimes, you know, when, when people throw up cases on the, on the form or whatever, and then there's, you know, they, they get temporary results. I think a lot of times that's because they're not addressing some of these other chronic areas because yeah, you've set that fifth lumbar great, but maybe, maybe a, a 12th thoracic or something, you know, can't change enough to allow all that. So they had the body has to go back into that similar pattern or, you know, to make that go back again. So I find that quite a bit. So those are things I'm always looking for as far as, you know, what could possibly hinder the results in, in, what, in my adjustments. Yeah, I agree with you. When, I see, um, when you see x-rays and you're just trying to use x-rays alone, if the patient's acute, you've got a decent chance of maybe be able to find the problem on the x-ray. But when they're a chronic, it gets really hard. People ask about chronic patients, and you're like, if I can't get my hands on them, I don't really know. Like, I can kind of guess at a few different things. I've got, I've got like my list of usual suspects, but without your hands on the patient, you can't start ruling anything out to really know where it's coming from. And, and that is the tricky nature of the chronic subluxation. Yeah, it's really tough. I, I do online sessions with, with a couple of colleges, and I was doing one this week. And I threw up some x-rays of this 75-year-old patient I got that his legs are basically giving out. And I talked to him about, you know, pain is one thing, but things got to be really chronic when you start getting into function because you don't lose function right away. Usually it's always pain syndromes first. And then, you know, if it's been there long enough, then then really start having functional issues. But when I threw up his x-ray, he doesn't have a disc left in his whole body. So you know, he's had horrible problems for a long, long, long time. And, you know, these people that, that rely real heavily on the x-ray to go, oh, well, what do I adjust? You know, that's going to be absolutely of no help <laughs> for the most part, you know, because he's got yeah. a spondylo, he's got no discs, he's got all this stuff. And you're just like, you know, you had better be good at doing a good exam. And and even then, he's, he's a tough case, you know, it's, it, so... Those are the skills that we really need to, you know, express to these students that they need to be focusing on their palpation. You know, they're all so worried about adjusting. And you know, one of my mentors told me early on, told me early on that that you know at some point adjusting is not going to be your problem. It's going to be finding what to adjust, and that's so true. I mean, you know, you can move a bone, and even if you can't, if you pump on the right one, you know, you get decent results most of the time. But if you're not on the right one, well, it all falls apart. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of these chronic ones and the x-rays, how, how valuable do you think it is to, to, well, how valuable is it to have an x-ray of them? How valuable would it be to re-x-ray them? And is there anything really particular or special you're looking for on an x-ray if they are a chronic patient? X-ray is huge. I, I don't work I'd hate to work without x-ray except unless it's with kids and, and if it's, if the kids are severe, I x-ray them too. So anybody, you know, that's an adult gets an x-ray for sure, just because you just don't know. So, you know, just how to correct it. I just, I don't feel secure, you know, put, especially on the elderly, you know, pushing on bones. Uh, if I'm not exactly sure the direction they need to go, because I see some wicked rotations in some of these spines and you just, you just think about it. if I would take that a little further, the way it's rotated or, you know, I'd be like, man, that would be, that would just seems like that would be devastating. So yeah, yeah. x-ray is huge in my book. I would not want to practice without it. And when it comes to the chronics, you know, what I look for are 
you know, the, the, the stages of degeneration, the D1 through six, and you know, I'm looking for, okay, is, is the disc thin somewhere? Especially what I find a lot, and, you know, also, uh, you know, where they, where the, on the A to P where it takes off from level. Sometimes what I'll find a lot is like, you'll do your, your, your exam and you'll find like C7, you know, you know, T10 and like L5 or on a patient. But then when you look at the x-ray, the, you know, C7 is in part of a compensatory curve where it takes off at T3. So T, you know, T4 is level and T3 is PRIT and C7 doesn't, you know, it's just within that, that compensatory curve, but you really don't find a T3 showing up real bold um, on your exam. So then when I go back to the patient, after I see that, if I do this additional palpation, I'll start to elicit information at T3. And a lot of times it, it, T3 is truly a bad subluxation, but the reading was very, very small. It was overshadowed by the bigger reading up at C7. And, you know, the tissue wasn't real obvious unless I started, you know, with you. Gonsev would get up underneath those subluxations and he would kind of jiggle his fingers. If you watch him palpate, he would do that. And, and that's what my mentor talked about. You know, he, he just would start eliciting, you know, the inflammatory responses in the, in the, in the old sleepy tissue. And you know, the tissue has been, you know, so chronic so long, it's, you know, it's kind of just, they're dying and it's just, you know, it's kind of asleep, but you can wake it up. Just like, you know, when you scope, you know, the more you scope, the more the readings come out when well, you're waking up those responses that aren't really acute anymore. So, you know, I'll do that. And C7 may have on that patient may need to be end up adjusted too. But uh, a lot of times when you go down and you go, well, find that and you find out that T3 does need to be adjusted. Then when I go back, cause I'm a big rechecker, I recheck everybody two ways. I, uh, I check for palpation. Then I also check the muscles involved. My mentor uh, developed uh, an additional criteria of basically checking some muscles that are related to the spinal levels. So I always tell the patients, I said, you know, if, if, if your muscles are light bulbs and the spine are the switches and the nerves are the wires, I said, if you have a, a, a flicked on switch, you should have a light bulb shining somewhere. So he kind of mapped out these muscles in relation. So just by feeling the muscles, if they're, in, if they're in spasm or have too much tone, I can roughly know, you know, to about roughly in the spine, almost to the same level of certainty as the scope shows you what level of spine that's coming from. But what's nice about it is that when you make a correction, there's going to be an instantaneous change in the muscle. So let's say I adjust the C7, I go back and check the muscles that relate to that. You know, the spasm will be gone or greatly reduced. If it's not, then either I reset or I go back to checking things. So, and what's nice about that too, is that if you find C7 and T3 and then check all those muscles and only find T3 muscles active, well, that kind of that helps you make that decision between what's what's important and what's not. So, uh, but a lot of times when I'll, I'll find these chronic ones adjusted, you know, the, I'll go back and palpate and the motion will be completely different. Just like, you know, sometimes when you, you palpate somebody's neck and it all feels locked up, but you're only finding a lower cervical, you adjust it, then you come back and then everything above it moves again just because that, that whole region was locked down because of compensatory spasms where, you know, it's all about finding the major. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, let's get this chronic patient and let's put a little twist on it, which um, this happens to be my favorite scenario is what if the patient comes in and they're chronic, but their story is I've had this for 20 years. I've seen seven different chiropractors, but I heard you were different. 
how do you approach that patient? Do you approach that patient any differently than your own chronic patients? No, I just tell them the story, you know, because, you know, obviously they've never probably been to a, they weren't, didn't go to seven Gonston chiropractors. That's probably true. <laughs> but, but that's, you know, that's actually a very common scenario. Maybe it's not seven, but I'd say a good majority of the people that me and most of the people I know see, we're not the first chiropractors they go to. And, you know, and they do come to us because we are different. And that's, that's a common thing. And my patients go, Hey, I've got this so-and-so who really needs to see you, but they've been to a couple of chiropractors and they're just kind of, kind of skeptical. And I'll say, Hey, just tell them we're different. And I've done that for years. And that, that usually will get people to come in because I think inherently people know what we do is the solution for them, but because they've been burned a couple of times, they're just, you know, it's an investment. You know, they've wasted time and money and they just don't want to keep doing it. But if there's hope in their mind and they go, Hey, well, if this guy's different, you know, then they'll come in. It's like all the patients I've, I mean, this last year, I can't tell you how many patients I've gotten from the Gonset videos that these guys are doing, like Dr. Ian and Dr. Raheem, because <laughs> people, people are finding, they're searching for this stuff and they, they find it. There's a chiropractor that actually checks the spine. And that's, and that's what I asked these patients. I, I said, what about the videos made you come in? Was it the case that he was seeing? They're like, no, it's the fact that he used an x-ray and he was checking the spine. I'm like, wow. So yeah, that's, that's why we do what we do. Yes. So, um, no, I just tell them, I said, you know, I don't know who you've been to or what they did. Cause I don't really don't want to put anybody down, but I said, most chiropractors don't check anything prior to laying their hands on you. And then they give you the same seven area adjustment over and over again. And everybody before you and after you gets the same thing, you know, and their eyes will get real big and go, that's exactly what he did. And I'm like, yeah, cause that's about 85% of the profession in my estimation. So yeah. that's the way I approach it. But no, I, I, I don't care who they've been to before. They get the same workup that every patient gets. Yeah, and I think the only thing that I do differently is I always start by just telling myself in my head, it's probably not something really obvious. So look a little deeper, like intentionally dig just a little bit deeper. And, ask, and I always ask myself the question, what am I missing here? To see if there's something a little deeper. But I think the other advantage we have too, and I assume everybody does this like I do, but when I'm done, because I know they've seen a bunch of others, I tell them specifically what's going on. And usually in the course of doing that, I end up telling them that they have certain symptoms that they hadn't told me yet they had. And they would go, wow, how did you know that I had that? Well, because if you, you have what I said you had, the consequence of that is this, therefore you would have this. And they go, yeah, well, I do. Well, then that just confirms, like checking your math, that the problem is what we think it is. Um, and that also tends to make them go, okay, so you understand my problem. Then I have more faith that you'll actually be able to fix it. Right. That's great. You know, that's the beauty of Gonstead is that somebody who's been thoroughly trained in the work, we have a rationale for nearly everything. Mm -hmm. you know, we, we understand how this all works and how it plays. And it's like, it's like knee pain. You know, we understand that the knees actually stabilized by muscles on the hip and those hip muscles come from nerves in the, you know, lower thoracic upper lumbar region, you know, and those, those muscles are in spasm, that knee's going to be pulled laterally and have medial pressure causes medial knee pain. And that's why we understand a lot of knee problems are fixed by the thoracolumbar area. You know? So, mm -hmm. you know, we have rationale for that. And, and back to what you were saying about those other people, I had a lady, a new patient yesterday, she had come in and she'd been to a rack and crack and guy. And, um, you know, he said, he helped my neck, but he, it's my low back. He didn't do a thing for my low back. And I checked her and she had a bad fit lumbar. And what I told her, I said, you know, most of those guys, 
you know, they're usually out here on your ilium's and they're adjusting these SI joints because they're they do one side and then do the other. And she's like, yeah, that's 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 pretty much what he did. So I'm like, he just never was on the right one, and it makes complete sense. And the good thing about our exam too is, you know, Dr. Gonsad said that you should palpate a patient so that both you and the patient know you're on the right one, which means you know you don't have to make them jump out of the chair, but you know you should elicit enough discomfort to, and tell them, you know, there it is, it's right there. So I'm big on doing that too. I'm like, you know, that's, this is your problem. And the patients, you know, they only want to know a couple of things is, you know, if you know what their problem is and can you help them more or less. And that, you know, when you do that, and just like you were saying, you tell the patient other problems that they're probably having, that just gives them that confidence that they're in the right spot. They're not wasting their time and money and that you're going to help them. Yeah. The, uh, the other scenario that can be kind of fun is um, when they come in and they tell you, okay, I have this problem. They tell you their symptomatology. Then they tell you that the other person adjusted them and they kind of got better, but mostly the pain just changed. So like not that long ago, I had a patient, that was the case. So I looked at the symptomatology um, from what they were saying they originally had. And I thought, okay, it sounds like they probably had a PIEX, but knowing how that person adjusts, just kind of a general diversified adjustment, they basically de facto correct a PIIN because they push it up and they push it out. So what they had done is they had fixed the PI component, but they made the EX component worse. And that led to a change in symptoms that now presented as an EX ilium. So then all you have to do is fix the EX ilium and they're totally better. And it's just this weird scenario that, that we understand the patient's just like, I don't even know what just happened. And, I'm, and I kind of go, well, I don't know if I can totally explain it to you, but we can see how the first adjustment was half a correction and half a make it worse. And then they just need that other component because to me, the components make that big a deal. So like with a chronic patient, you can't get it 85% right. You really need to get it hundred percent right. You've got to figure out the different components and, and mix and match them as they've got them. Absolutely. You know, that's, you know, it's like a partial correction will probably get partial results. And mm -hmm. it's just like the uh, getting enough depth on a, on a segment, you know, Sometimes if people don't, I, you know, if they're not responding or partially responding, you may not just be setting it deep enough. I mean, that's the beauty of the knee chest table. I'm, I'm not a big knee chest guy. I use it on a regular basis, but it's not my go-to table, but I call it my big gun because, you know, a lot of times like I'll have, if I have a person with a bad fifth lumbar and, you know, and, you know, on the side posture, it seems like it moves great, but they're still not responding. Well, I'll put them on the knee chest because I can get that extra depth with that less effort and that's where they'll respond. So it's like, you know, I was on the right segment. I was getting partial correction, but not enough correction. So it's that, you know, whatever percentage was left, you know, made all the difference in the world. And, you know, when you, when these other chiropractors aren't number one, even checking anything and two, let alone using an x-ray or know how to read an x-ray to know how to correct it. Yeah. I'm sure that's why a lot of them fail uh, to achieve results and they come to a guy like yourself who knows what he's doing. Well, you just got to clean up the mess. Yeah. I, I, you kind of bring an interesting point because I do think that the variety of tables, or I should say the variety of ways in which we can fix something um, that does lend itself quite well to the chronic patient because maybe the adjustment they were getting wasn't a terrible adjustment. It just wasn't the one that their body would respond best to. And if you don't have a couple different ways of doing it to get it from different vectors and different angles, then you may never get it all the way there. 
Right. Yeah. And that's, you know, as the longer I've been, I think we've been in practice about the same amount of time. And, you know, the longer I'm in practice, the more, you know, I'm really falling in love with a lot of the prone work, especially for my elderly people in the, on the high-low. You know, when yeah. you, you get out of school, you know, the prone work, that's not the sexy stuff. You know, you want to be able to set the thoracics in the chair and, you know, and uh, you know, just rock everybody's world, get the deepest set, loudest set you can get. Then you get in practice and realize that patients don't appreciate that like we do and, and how effective you can be in the prone work and how and actually how it's quite easier on the, us as the doctor as well. So, you know, I would say in the last five years, I've been doing a ton more prone work than I ever have uh, in the previous 15 before that. So, you know, not to say that I don't do a ton of everything else, but, you know, it's just that I just appreciate, you know, what the prone work can do because you, you can get the line driving, you know, you don't have to necessarily get the, the huge crushing sound and, and, uh, and also you don't scare patients. Yeah, I... I, I can. Th- I have one. Ex- I have a 80 year old woman with a compression fracture that I have to do on the the knee chest, and basically I just apply pressure, and as she relaxes out from under, it goes. So that's like my one exception. But you're right. The majority of the time, as people get older, they don't need. I always tell students, hit a single, not a home run. You don't need. You don't need to crank these people out of the park. Just get them on the high low. Um, sometimes you could you don't even have to release the um, the cushions. Just the cushion itself is enough give that you can get a, a nice adjustment on there and it's comfortable enough for them that they can actually receive it better. So yeah, you're, I think you're absolutely right that it's funny how, as you practice, you kind of, I don't know if evolve is the right word, but you just kind of find that different things work better if you treat them differently, I guess. I don't know. It's hard to, it's hard to articulate, but it changes. Well, you know, most people are smarter than I am, so I don't learn lessons necessarily really fast, but I don't either. <laughs> I, I always, I always tell the students that everything I'm telling you is because I've made mistakes and I don't want you to make the same ones. I tell them I've ran off or lost more patients, you know, than you'll ever know because I was doing it what, you know, my way or whatever. And I told them a story that I learned. This is a 20 year in practice lesson. I just learned that I had a, I had a kid come in, a young kid. He's probably, what was he? he's like six or seven but he was having these reoccurring fevers and he had been to two other chiropractors in the past. And he was currently a patient of a local pediatric chiropractor who is not Gonstead. And, um, you know, he, he would have these fevers, the adjustments would help and, you know, but they would come back. So, you know, I checked him and I found he had an Atlas and also an upper thoracic. And, um, I said him, it wasn't, it wasn't aggressive. It wasn't hard, but it was audible. And, you know, he responded, the fever went away, but, and then when they came back, the mom's like, he's really scared. He didn't like, he doesn't like a sound because I guess the other chiropractor, there was no audibles involved, but she got yeah. the same results with him too. So I just said, oh, buddy, I'm sorry. I said, I promise I'll adjust you lighter today. There won't be any noise. So what I did is I got, you know, I still found his, the same, same pattern. It's still his atlas and his upper thoracic. So I sat him in the chair and I just kind of did more of a, a, a short, you know, micro thrusts in the right direction. And I rechecked the motion. The motion was better. And then I put him on the high-low for the uh, upper thoracic and just lightly set it, no audible, you know, and he was totally happy, got the same exact response. Uh, things went away. Uh, so what that taught me is that, you know, you don't, <laughs> you, you know, you got to be careful and don't, don't think, don't go for that big audible and, th- and stuff. Even if you think you're being light, if you don't need to, because it's not, you know, the sound doesn't fix people. It's the, it's the correction yeah. of sensation that fixes people. 
That is like the biggest thing that I'm on is this campaign about how the noise is irrelevant. I don't care about the noise. I care about the correction. <laughs> you know, I learned that from my mentor that he, especially with the elderly people, he would do this procedure where he would get on it and he would just tell them, all right, I'm going to work through this a little bit several times. And he would just kind of push down and, and give a little thrust, you know, a little deeper, a little thrust and do it a few times, a lot of times with no sound. And, you know, he did a lot of, uh, segments that way on, on especially on like when he did the prone pelvic work and uh he got great results with that and i found that i get great results too and i you know your motions restored so you know a lot of times i'll even tell them i said i you, know, you probably won't hear any noise with this just so they aren't those people that think that if you don't hear anything you didn't get it you know those patients that tell you you didn't get that <laughs> yeah Although, you know, it's funny. So there are times when there's like no noise and I feel like I hardly got it. And they're like, man, that moved like crazy. And you're like, okay. And then there's other times where, um, where you move it and you're thinking that's one of the biggest like things I've had all day. And the patient's like, that was you or that didn't move. And you're like, are you kidding? <laughs> so it's like, my that's finger. I'm like, you know, it's all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's funny. So, yeah. Um, well, I guess, so we were talking about depth too, and I, that is an important component that we don't often talk about. And I think it's really hard to quantify because uh, like we were, like you were saying, so somebody puts up a case and they say, well, here's what I'm doing on this patient. They're not getting better. And everybody looks at it and they go, well, it looks like you're doing the right thing. I would just keep doing it. Often in those cases, I'm thinking, yeah, but I don't know what your depth is. You might be going too deep and you might not be going deep enough. It's, it's such a crucial component to find that right depth. And yet, probably one of the most challenging parts because students always ask, well, how deep do I set it? How deep do I go? I don't know <laughs> the right amount. Like it's, it's one of the hardest components. And yet if the depth is wrong, that sometimes alone is enough to not really get you what you're looking for. Um, Absolutely. And I think that's why you have to do rechecks because, you know, even I don't know for sure the exact depth that's going to be required to, to fix that subluxation. Now I'll, I'm going to give it the thrust based upon, you know, what, what my experience and feel tell me, but if you recheck and that motion is not improved to your satisfaction, then you need to reset it. And that's, that takes a level of, I mean, I, I, the students really need to learn to palpate, you know, for motion and compare that because, and, you know, at least for, you know, to be able to distinguish if it's improved and remember that when they're checking and doing their exam, they need to motion all those segments and, you know, significantly to understand how it's moving before the adjustment and then give the thrust then put them back in the chair and do that same motion palpation again and see if it's significantly improved. If it's not, they, they're not, that's not deep enough, no matter what it sounded like, good or bad. But if it's better then if, even if it didn't sound good, you did your job. In my experience, that's, that's the way I practice. And that's what I, I think it's the only way we really know if, you know, a lot of people go, oh, I know I got that. Well, no, you really don't. You, know, you think you got it. But if, unless you're doing some type of verification process, you really don't know. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess and applying the depth concept to the chronic patient, I think a lot of times with, with chronic patients, I might start out thinking, I'm going to use the least amount of force and the least amount of depth possible and still get it to move with the idea that as we go down the road, I can then I can then give it more. So I think even that, the depth is not, even from on one patient, the depth isn't necessarily the same from adjustment to adjustment. It can change. And that's a variable we don't often think about. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. As long as we get the job done, use as little force as possible because it's yeah. all trauma. You know, people don't realize that what we're doing is we're traumatizing the spine, but the only difference, the only reason why what we do is beneficial versus, you know, you know, a, tr- a car, a car wreck or hitting them in the head with a shovel is that our trauma is restoring motion to a stuck joint. So, you know, if people don't get that, if that's why, you know, the random manipulators that does destroy the spine over time is because that's just just pure trauma. You know, even though it feels good because of the pain relieving effect to it, they're traumatizing those spines over and over. And some of the worst spines I've seen, uh, you know, were people who've been to under chiropractic care for a long, long time and just got random manipulation. Their spines are just destroyed. Yeah. So, so with chronic patients, do you tend to give them more time between adjustments or less time or the same as you would anybody else? Do you vary that at all? No, most of my, most of my new patients will start off at two to three times a week if they're in, you know, unless they're in extreme pain. And so I try to start everybody off at that at pace and I just vary, you know, I vary it only, if, you know, if something tells me to, but um, no, I don't treat them any differently than I do any other patient. I just, I, you know, I check everybody at the same too, but when I know that they're really chronic and got a ton of degeneration and stuff, then I really have to, you know, pull out some of these other tricks and, you know, and, and take a little more time to look for some of these other things that I might not look for on somebody who I don't think is as chronic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as you, we were talking about two different things, I kind of realized there was overlap. And so it made me think about this. I've been seeing kids as long as I've been in practice and you probably have too. And it seems like now I'm seeing more kids with chronic problems than I ever saw before. Are you finding that too? You know, it's funny you say that. So, you know, when I x-ray kids, I had a four, was a 14 year old girl not too long ago who had like a, I think it was like a D five fifth lumbar. And I'm like, you know, or, you know, or, or D four, it was a really thin lumbar and it wasn't transitional or anything like that. And I'm like, you know, for that to be at that level, she had to get that when she was an infant or a toddler. So I'm like, you know, and I, and I tell the patients often, I said, even, you know, at her age being so young, these are chronic issues because, you know, most of us get a lot of trauma at birth and when we are learning to walk and when we're young and, you know, if that thing doesn't become symptomatic for 10 years, that's very chronic. A 10 year old subluxation is a chronic subluxation. So, you know, I'm seeing radiographic evidence of that. And like I x-rayed them, um, I had a family come in and I x-rayed the, um, the daughter and even the son, they both had uh, compression fractures, uh, you know, and one had a real bad notochordal uh, uh, indentation and stuff. And I'm like, you know, did you ever know that that happened to you? And they're like, no. So, you know, these are chronic issues. And that's why I think it's really important to uh, adjust uh, or x-ray the kids if you, if you can. But yeah, I mean, I definitely see a lot of chronic stuff in kids. I mean, we just, I think sometimes if we don't x-ray them, we don't know just how chronic they are. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. And so then typically I've always, a lot of times with kids, they, they're so good at healing, especially like the, when they get the little babies. So I end up seeing a lot of little babies um, kind of for a weird reason, I guess, but it has to do with the fact that um, my wife does a lot of um, evaluations on kids for tongue tie. 
And there's definitely a fair number of those kids that she looks at and she goes, well, they don't have a tongue tie, but they're having digestive issues. And she refers them to me. You should go see him. <laughs> so I'll end up with these kids. And when you get them, they might be really colicky and they've had problems since birth and all this other issues, but you could adjust them once or twice and they're great from then on. And so we get used to almost taking it for granted that kids heal so fast. And now it's like I'm seeing eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 year olds. And it's taking a couple, it's taking more than one or two adjustments because the problems are already chronic and they're not just an acute thing that they need to get over. So it's, it, there's definitely some kind of a change happening there, but, but it's all stuff that I always think when you can fix it now, while you're still young, you're fixing it for your lifetime. Cause you're not done growing yet. Once you're done growing, you've got what you've got, but if you can fix it in a kid, it really, the profound effect that has on them for the rest of their life is huge. So it's great. to oh. see yeah, you're absolutely right. And I don't, I don't know what strategies you use when you talk to patients to kind of plant the, the kid's seed. But a lot of times when I'm doing my report of findings with my patients and, and I point out these chronic areas on like, say, a, 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 a lady who has kids or whatever, and she's coming in as a new patient, I'll be like, you know, yeah, this, I said, you know, this, this thing's been with you probably 20 years. I said, that's why we see a lot of babies and kids is because that's when that started. I said, but they don't hurt. Things in your body aren't designed to hurt until the end stage, whether it be heart disease, cancer, or tooth decay. You know, these things are no different. So you're not going to feel them until they're really bad. So by doing that, let them know that the kids is where, you know, where she, as a kid, she probably got these problems. She, they start to think, well, man, I wonder what type of problems my kids have. Maybe I should get them in there. And more often than not, especially once they've gotten better and gotten results and we've established that trust, you know, sooner or later, they bring their you know, make appointments for their kids. So it's kind of the way I teach, you know, so if you want to see kids, you know, start planting that seed day one on these, on these new patients. Yeah. And from the time that I opened, I always had a, a family fee because I didn't want people to not ha let have their kids be seen just because of an issue of cost. So, and I fear, you know, if they're fine, they're fine, but if they're not, let's fix it. And so I've always done that kind of thing. And that has allowed me to see a lot of families over the years and, um, around here, I, I have a number of families that have a lot of kids. <laughs> I used yeah. to have, I used to have two families that I think one had six kids and one had like seven or eight. And one day they came in back to back and I was like, Oh my goodness, that is the busiest hour. <laughs> Just like trying to get through all these people. But, um, but I don't know, they're kids. And once you get to know them, um, it gets a little bit easier cause you kind of know what you're looking for and what to expect with them. You know, their activities, you know what they do. Uh, it helps, but um, yeah, but definitely for kids, like we don't want to ignore the kids because it is so much, you're right, it's so much easier to fix it when they're kids than to wait till they're 30 or 40 and they've had this problem for 20 years and now they're having horrible symptoms and in deep trouble because of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we, yeah, I mean, really, parents want to do what's best for their kids. I mean, you know, people are funny. You know, I've always been astonished. You know, early in practice, you know, we, we get out of practice sometimes and we have this poverty concept and we just want to help everybody out and we're willing to cut our fees or make plans for people. But then you'll hear, you know, you give somebody a break and, or you're giving them a discount and then they'll tell you a story that they just spent five grand on a surgery for their dog or, yeah. you know, or they did something like they spent a ton of money on something else. And you realize, you know what people will afford or find a way to pay for anything they value. It's like, you know, I had one patient one time, you know, he was like, oh, I can't come three times a week. Well, he was a big smoker. I was like, well, you, you can afford to smoke. He's like, you're right. So he, he quit smoking and he got adjustments. And 
So it's one of those things that, you know, I think we just in our brains, I don't know. And I don't know why chiropractors are plagued with this typically, but we just don't value ourselves or we don't think people value us enough. So we just make too many concessions. And, you know, I've did, I, you know, I did the same thing for kids over the years, but then I realized how much work they are. <laughs> and, you yeah, know, sometimes they are more, yeah. And I was like, you know, so I stopped doing that. And, you know, I, I see more kids now than I ever have it. So it's just one of those things that, you know, I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying, you know, yeah. people will pay and especially for their kids. Cause you know, they're going to put their kids health before their own. So, yeah. you know, like I, the family got a family coming in that everybody she's gotten everybody in her family and except for her, you know? So it's <laughs> like, she, she's just a matter of time, but she's gotten everybody else taken care of except, you know, for her yet. Yeah, definitely. I guess, um, so I guess when it comes to this chronic patient, the only thing we haven't really talked about is scoping. Do you, is, do you find any changes with scoping with chronic patients versus? Um... Oh, yeah, that's the big one. That's, that's one of my pet peeves is that, you know, people scope way too fast to what I, what I'm seeing is, yes. you know, that's why I posted on YouTube, um, uh, a video of Gonset scoping, looking at how slow he goes. Yeah. You know, Gonset scopes slow, you know, and, you know, multiple times and, you know, the, the chronic subluxation readings, number one, a lot of them are bilateral. So, which means if you're not tilting the scope or using right. that procedure, you're just flat out missing it altogether. And two, a lot of the rings are very, very small. So that's, and, and a lot of these chronic subluxations have an acute sub, a more, a more acute subluxation very close to them. So that when you're running that instrument down, even if you're going slow, you're seeing this pretty significant break and then going down. And maybe there's a little reading there, but you really kind of, you're so preoccupied because you just saw it and you're remembering where it was or whatever that you really just kind of, your brain kind of glazes over these smaller little breaks, which are the chronic ones. So you have to be, you know, you, you, you have to really focus to be paying attention for the little ones or you'll just miss them. And, and that tilting the scope uh, procedure is a must. So when I scope somebody, most of the time <clears throat> I'll do a couple of straight passes and then I'll do a tilt pass uh, just to make sure. And then even if I don't get any rings, I still static palpate, you know, the entire spine for those tissue changes and edema that I might be, might have uh, edema because sometimes you do miss the readings. I mean, I miss readings all the time, but then when I go and I, you know, run my hand down the entire spine real thoroughly and checking for those tissue changes, <clears throat> it'll alert me to something I've missed and then I'll go and I'll rescope and you make sure that I'm <clears throat> maybe I didn't tilt it. Maybe I'd overlook it. And then I'll find those little readings and I'll be like, dang, yeah, I completely missed that because it was either small or it was bilateral. So, you know, that's the great thing about our criteria is if, if you do it all and you do it all correctly, you'll miss a lot less, but you've got to do that. And that's, I tell the students, you don't, don't shortchange the exam. You got to do a good exam and you have to trust your exam because you might, you know, people still want to try to diagnose off these x-rays and go, oh, it's got to be this. <clears throat> and, you know, I'm guilty of it too. Sometimes when people come in and they tell me I got low back pain going down the back of the leg, I'm like, okay, we're looking at fifth lumbar or something like that. You know, and I already have my mind where I'm probably going to find it, but you got to accept where the, if the exam says it's you know, four or sacrum, you have to accept that. You can't go, well, I'm going to, you know, make it appear at some other level. Yeah, there's, I don't, I don't think I generally consciously think about it, but when you're doing your exam, 
there's a minimum level of confidence that you have to have in how sure you are that you found the subluxation. And if I'm looking, I'm like, I'm not, I haven't met that minimum level, then I need to keep scoping. I need to keep palpating. I need to keep asking questions. I need to keep going until I reach that minimum level until you can go, I am whatever. I don't even know where it is. 80, 85% confident that I have found the thing, or maybe it's a hundred percent, but there's a certain level where you go, this is it. I found it. But as long as you're not sure you have to keep, you just have to keep looking. You have to find something to either rule it in or rule it out. And that's one of, that's what makes it complicated though, is because oftentimes you're extremely confident that you found this more acute subluxation. Yes. Because remember, I usually find an acute one in the, in the vicinity of these chronics. Yes. So yeah, I'm extremely confident in this one, which makes me either then I, my guard's kind of down. Cause I, Oh, I found that C7, but then I missed that one at T2 or T3. Yeah. You know, it's cause I was real confident in the one, but this other one was like, Oh, it's just, you know, sometimes we think smaller readings aren't as bad or something, but you know, that we do overlook because we are so confident in what we found. Yeah. And then you would, you would adjust the C7 and then the patient would say something like, uh, now my headache's even worse. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and then you scope them again and there's this giant reading at T2 and you're like, am I new? Like what happened? So yeah. then you have to, uh, you have to adjust the T2. And then as soon as you do it, they're like, that was amazing. My headache's gone. And you're thinking, why didn't I just start with the T2? So yeah, yeah that's kind of what happens. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just amazing. You know, I, I always talk about when uh, I think it was one of the first times I was really adjusted by my mentor. I was, I had chiropractically induced migraines because um, in club, I let somebody, uh, practice on my atlas but he slid down to c2 and set my c2 across like atlas and uh i developed migraines and they got they got to the point where they became daily and really really severe and um i had been to even a few other gansa guys and nobody helped me and they a lot of them were adjusting other areas but dr landers he checked me and found t10 go figure because i had a bad c2 i think from all the, the trauma when i fractured my skull and he adjusted t10 and my migraines went away because i believe but that, you know, my upper cervical was compensating for that bad T10. But, you know, he, uh, you know, before the bad adjustment, you know, it, my, my body had compensated in a way. And then when he went up, went up there and disturbed C2, that C2 was just, it was compensating for, you know, everything else was going on in a bad way. So when he corrected that T10, uh, it just totally changed my world. And I, you know, really never had migraines since. So, yeah. But I had something similar. Um, when I started school, I had a reverse curve in my cervicals. So everybody wanted to go after my C7 uh, or my Atlas. And yet it ended up being a T5 because all those years of using my head as a weapon, I was creating whiplash and it was messing up my T5. And once that T5 got set, like the first time, I felt like 300 pounds came off my head. And I was like, oh, that's so much better. So yeah, it's not necessarily where it seems. The easy one may not necessarily be it, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. And that, and that's what Gonsa was really good at. My mentor were talking about, you know, he understood when he looked at a film, how the rest of the spine was reacting to something else. And that's, mm -hmm. that's one thing that, you know, we, when you, when we look at the film and teach students, you know, when we throw like, like a lateral film, you know, I said, you know, what's supposed to be normal, but when you start low and look up, like, if, you know, look at where the curves become abnormal. Like if you've got a, a lumbar curve and then at T11, the spine straight from there on up, I said, if you see that, you got to know that's a bad area. You know, and even if you're not finding it on your exam, you better go reinvestigate that area because that's probably a very chronic area. You know, anything that's going to possibly change the spine that much is probably pretty chronic or really, really bad to begin with. So, 
know, there's, there's, there's clues that can lead you to things you may be missing in the chronic patient on those films for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this, this has been fun and that was the fastest hour. And I, um, I don't think I've ever spent so much time thinking about chronic subluxations, which might be the point. Maybe we need to spend a lot more time thinking about chronic subluxations. Um, but yeah, I th thank you for coming on and talking about these things. I think this is a huge topic that we obviously need to talk about more. Um, but it's great just to get on the subject and talk about some of these things. Yeah, I had a blast. This was fun. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. All right. Thanks, David. I want to thank Dr. Waller once again for joining us. I hope today's episode helped you to gain some understanding and insight into knowing how best to work with chronic patients. If you haven't already heard, the Gonstead Extravaganda has been moved to July 11th and 12th. That means you still have time to make plans and join us there. We'll keep you updated as we get closer to the date, but we hope you'll make the decision to join us. So until then, stay healthy and stay safe, and we'll see you next time.